our current system, the conventional approach to education that is reflective of this factory mindset and model, it doesn't align with what we know about human development. It doesn't align with what we know about how learning happens. It doesn't align with the reality that people are smart and intelligent and capable in lots of different ways. And so by doubling down on the sort of conventional system and trying to make it more efficient, I think what we've seen is that we've narrowed our conceptions of success and capability um, even further than what it was 30 years ago. Our current conception of smart in school is very narrow and it asks kids, are you smart? As opposed to how are you smart? Which is a very different way to orient yourself to the work of education. Welcome to How to Have Kids Love Learning, where we explore ideas and strategies for parents and educators that help students thrive. I'm your host, Ed Madison. I'm a professor and researcher at the University of Oregon and serve as executive director of the Journalistic Learning Initiative, a nonprofit organization that empowers middle and high school students to discover their voice, improve academic outcomes, and become self-directed learners through project-based storytelling. Teaching students to become effective communicators is at the heart of JLI's work. Alka Josie Hansen is the author of The Future of Smart, How Education, uh, How Our Education System Needs to Change to Help All Young People Thrive. She's a program or actually the chief program officer at Grantmakers for Education and has worked in education herself for more than two decades. And she's also the mother of two sons. Her book offers a fresh perspective on the way forward um, for reforming our education system. Welcome, Alka. Hi, Ed. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, you know, early in the book, you remind us of this sort of rise of the industrial or factory model um, that um, still is sort of dominates education, but may never have actually ever been um, an appropriate way to frame how we, we teach kids. Could you talk mm-hmm. a little bit more about that? Yes. So the industrial or factory model of education, this is a phrase I think many of us are familiar with, and it calls to mind right this idea of a classroom with desks in rows and children sitting there taking in information from a teacher at the front of the room. And when we use that term, and we have used it a lot for the last two or three decades as we've sought to reform and improve education, it's as though we're pointing at the structure and part of what's inter- part of what I wanted to do in the book is to invite people to step back for a minute from the structures of the factory model or industrial model of education and why that doesn't work to say actually this factory model represents a whole set of values and assumptions about who young people are how they grow how they learn what education is about that really don't reflect the reality of what we now know about how what it takes for human beings to develop and to thrive. And so in the first part of the book, I say we have to go back about 500 years, not just 200 years to the industrial model, to understand this moment in Europe when two different worldviews were sort of in tension with each other and one came to dominate. So Prior to the kind of scientific revolution and the Enlightenment, many human societies were the same, right? We lived in small communities. Children were educated inside the context of their community. We saw ourselves as living beings that were connected to a living world um, and sort of embodied, connected, interconnected. 
And in Europe, around the time of the scientific revolution, there was this shift to understand the world as a machine. And with a machine, you can take the pieces apart, you can understand them, you can put it back together again, and it makes it usable. And there was this rise of what I call the modern Western kind of mindset, a Cartesian Newtonian understanding of the world that itself gave rise to this idea of the industrial model, to the rise of unrestrained capitalism. A lot of the systems and structures, including education, that today we're pointing at and saying, you know what, this doesn't serve lots of people. And so that's where I wanted folks to start with me in this journey to understand how we got here and where we can go as a result. Yes. And I think that a lot of education policy tries to quantify uh, quantify, you know, measure, um, aptitude, um, you know, and I, and I think there, there was sort of a romantic period that was an attempt to push back on a little of that, but maybe didn't, didn't succeed, um, if, if I get the history correct. That's right. Yes. Yeah. There have always been the folks who've been sort of pushing against this, um, this kind of uh, steamrolling, right, of the industrial and the quantification and this idea of objective knowledge. And you're right, the romantics were one of those mm-hmm. kind of groups that pushed back. Mm-hmm. You also talk about the two hemisp- hemispheres of the brain and this notion of right brain and left brain, which is often misinterpreted in terms of its meaning. Could you elaborate on that a bit? Right. So I'll start with what it's not, right? A lot of us have heard this idea of, oh, I'm left-brained, which means we're sort of saying I'm good at math or analysis, or I'm right-brained, which means I'm artistic or creative. This is not that, right? Everything we do, whether it's emotional, creative, analytic, requires our entire brain. However, there is more recent research into this question of why is our brain uh, divided into two different hemispheres that are then connected and inhibited by the corpus callosum. Ian McGilchrist is a neuroscientist and psychiatrist in the UK, and his answer to that question is, the two hemispheres of the brain pay attention to the world in different ways. So we're embodied beings, right? In this moment, you and I are each taking in a thousand different sensations. And the right hemisphere of the brain is like the big end of a funnel that takes in all of these embodied sensations. It takes in implicit meaning. It takes in patterns and images. But then we have to make that usable, right? Because we don't have to, we can't sift through millions of bits of information. So things go to the left hemisphere and the work of the left hemisphere is to simplify. It's very linear. It's very sequential. It abstracts things and makes them very simple so that we can use them. And ideally, when the brain is working properly, all of that then goes back to the right hemisphere to be used in context. So some people might call that wisdom. And Ian's argument, and there are a lot of other sociocultural historians who are sort of pointing at the same thing. He's saying that our world in the last 500 years has become overly dominated by left hemispheric tendencies, which like what you said, you're trying to abstract, you're trying to quantify, you're trying to simplify, you're trying to be efficient, right? And that we are paying a cost for that because we are human beings, right? And everything about humanity doesn't fit into the simplicity of the left hemisphere's worldview. Mm-hmm. You also say that um, scarcity uh, is is really kind of at the center of, of, of some of the ideological divide, even even politically, you know, uh, that, that's going on, but especially as we look at education, that there's this sense that, you know, there's a winners and losers, um, and, and that that's that's certainly not an ideal way to to raise kids and to to teach um, and fulfill on our intent that they be well educated. Right. 
Yeah. And and I think this goes back, it's a it's a field of philosophy called axiology that talks about how place shapes values. And if you think about kind of what Europe was like at this period that I invited people to go back to, right? It was a very difficult period. You were coming out of plagues and famines and collapse of banking houses. You had a lot of feudal and religious kind of wars being fought over small bits of land. And there really was kind of this sense that there wasn't enough. People were worried about their survival. And part of why we needed to learn to control the world was so that we could kind of have enough food and have enough resources. Colonization and the idea that Europeans went out to search the rest of the world, it wasn't driven by, you know, just kind of curiosity. It was a necessity in Europe at that time. They needed to find other places to get resources. And so there is a way that that period in Europe when this kind of worldview, this Cartesian-Newtonian worldview came to dominate, was very much immersed in this scarcity mindset. There was a lot of trauma being imposed on people in, in those lands at the time, when we think about the feudal period. And those folks then went out, right? They went out into the world. They encountered other cultures and other places that had a very different understanding. And abundance, right, is much easier to have when you live in a warm climate, for example, where if you don't have bananas, you have mangoes. If you don't have mangoes, you have other berries, right? So there, there's no sense that there's scarcity in the same way. Mm -hmm. So I think this left hemispheric worldview the, this notion of the Cartesian-Newtonian worldview and scarcity are deeply linked. Um, I think it's some of what we're trying to capture in, in lots of conversations today as we talk about white supremacy culture, which I don't love that term. I think in the U.S., race has been overlaid in very important and distinct ways. But the bigger questions of this mindset and cultural um, sets of values is bigger than, um, than that term encompasses. Mm -hmm. So we get into the the 50s and 60s and some reports that come out that suggest that the you know the U.S. is lagging behind and uh, and so what uh, you know Department of Education and various administrations do is sort of double down and the result is you know later no child left behind but lots of legislation that's that's really um, really emphasized more more of the same. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about that? So. The left hemisphere's work is very technocratic, right? So we see something and we think we have to make it more efficient. And in many ways, what the standards and accountability movement was trying to do was to say, look, we're going to standardize. We're going to have high expectations for all kids. We're going to have accountability, which will incentivize the system and the people inside of it to work better. And I think there have been very important findings that have come out of that body of work, right? We have data on how well the system was not serving all students. The problem is... Our current system, the conventional approach to education that is reflective of this factory mindset and model, it doesn't align with what we know about human development. It doesn't align with what we know about how learning happens. It doesn't align with the reality that people are smart and intelligent and capable in lots of different ways. And so by doubling down on the sort of conventional system and trying to make it more efficient, I think what we've seen is that we've narrowed our conceptions of success and capability um, even further than what it was 30 years ago. And that's where the title of the book comes from, right? That I think our current conception of smart 
in school is very narrow and it asks kids, are you smart? As opposed to how are you smart, which is a very different way to orient yourself to the work of education, where you assume that every human being is born with unlimited potential. And part of the work of education is to create a context and set of experiences that allow everybody to unfold into that, but it's gonna look different for everyone. Now, in part two, um, you kind of introduced this this term of holistic indigenous um, worldview, and you cite um, Montessori and uh, the Waldorf schools um, started by Rudolf uh, Steiner and and then Krishnamurti, who's a mystic that people may not be familiar with. But what is it that you're getting at with uh, in terms of what you've discovered in your research about these perspectives and others that are like them? Right. And, you know, in the, in the introduction to the book and the author's note, I really say, look, I'm taking a very particular moment in educational history. Um, and that moment is the one that we just talked about. So this worldview that I was talking about, this holistic indigenous worldview, which really was what human beings experienced collectively in different communities around the world versus a Cartesian Newtonian worldview. As the factory model of education was emerging and being sort of spread in Europe during the 17 and 1800s, these three thinkers were among the kind of um, most well-known who not only pushed back against the ideas like the Romantics did, but they actually built and designed other ways of doing education that reflected this idea of education as needing to be about centered on the human being, really reflecting and supporting a child's growth and development based on on what was known at the time. And so I'm using them to kind of help us unpack a little bit the differences between how factory and industrial models and conventional education are structured and the kind of beliefs about purpose and young people and learning and development that these three thinkers articulated in their writing and in their work. Mm -hmm. And for example, with uh... With, with Steiner. So I believe the first eight years of school, a, a student will have the same teacher uh, with the, with, you know, valuing this, the, the opportunity to really get to know a child and over a period of time. And, and it just, it seems so, it makes so much sense. I mean, why, how, I don't even know how we ended up with a situation where, where students not only have a different teacher every year in elementary school, but then in, in middle school and high school, you might have six different teachers who only see you for 50 minutes a day or, you know, an hour a day. So, how, you know, how can a child even really be known in that kind of um, setting, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. But the, I guess the real question is, is and as I've understood it, um, when you look at some of the, the, the tech billionaires, um, they tend to send their children <laughs> to Montessori and Waldorf schools. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they clearly know something. And they also uh, tend to, to uh, hold back on, uh, you know, smartphones and tablets and all that stuff uh, with, with, their, with their own children. Um, but I, I guess the question is, is can it scale? Can, because if you're talking about a more individualized um, style of teaching, which we know just logically makes more sense, but how do you do that? you know, given the large numbers of of kids in any given high school or middle school. Right. 
Well, that's a multi-part question. So let me first back up for a second. You know, in the second part of the book where I used these three thinkers, I laid out a framework that said, you know, we think of schools as falling in three buckets. You've got your conventional school or approach, which is very much our modern day version of the factory model. We've got this huge bucket in the middle that I call whole child innovative reform, which is we see what doesn't work with the conventional and we try and improve it, but we do it by bolting solutions on whether it's a socio-emotional learning program or project-based learning or all these kinds of different things. And then this third bucket is where the Montessori's, the progressive models that you're talking about, and a lot of our alternative high schools sit. And I call those human-centered liberatory models. And you're right, right? And I think that's actually very important for us to note, is that people who can often send their children to environments like that, which they feel are nurturing and supportive and are going to give them what they need. And Part of what we did inadvertently through the standards and accountability movement was make it very, very difficult for these human-centered liberatory programs to survive in the public system. Because if you don't think that learning happens in nine-month cycles, how are you going to design you know, a, a class that actually reflects the, the fact that every eight-year-old doesn't know the same things and isn't in the exact same place? So we sort of honed in on and buckled in on an approach to education that just doesn't reflect the reality. So you asked about scale. I tend to think of it more as spreading, right? Even the word scale is very industrial. And it thinks about like, how do you efficiently kind of bring this to more people? And what I like about spread is that it's consistent with this holistic ecological value, which is that we exist in places. We exist in communities. And it becomes a community conversation to say, what is it that we want education to do for our, for our young people? And then what are we going to do collectively as communities to make that workable in the place where we are? And that's going to look really different. I live in Denver, Colorado. It's going to look really different in Denver than it does in a rural district that has 45 kids in a high school. But I think if we, if we start with the purpose, right, which is the purpose of education is to help develop young people who have what they need to thrive in life. And part of that is cognitive and academic. And then a whole bunch of it is about this sense of belonging, identity, purpose, self, connectedness, right? And all of these, I don't like the word non-cognitive skills, but all these things, communication, empathy, collaboration, complex problem solving. So if we start with that as the purpose, then I think we can be inspired by a lot of the models that exist. And I try to name and give examples of a lot of them in the book. But there's another piece to it. And this is where I would say, you know, in my work now, in my sphere of influence, there's a certain infrastructure investment that needs to be made in the public education system. Because you'll never be able to have human-centered models until we do accountability differently than with standardized tests. We're never gonna be able to do education differently as long as we say, you know, learning only counts in the classroom. And even if you're learning things with your grandmother or in your community, that doesn't count as learning. So there's a whole new set of systems and structures and policies that we need to build. And I think of it as infrastructure investment in the sense of, how do we create space in the public system for the folks who are already doing this work um, and know what they need to do the work to actually codify it, right? And to say, here's what this alternative way of thinking about systems would look like. And once you have those systems, it becomes easier for more schools to become, um, to sort of move in that human-centered liberatory direction. And then what I will say is that it's 
you know, so much of this is about a mindset. So my children go to Denver public schools and they go to pretty conventional schools, but every parent who's listening or every educator can really help their child to appreciate that actually learning happens everywhere all the time. My life is about learning. And if I use that frame, then all of a sudden I'm an agent of my learning in a very different way. If you're a classroom teacher, you can make room in your class to say to kids, and they often don't know how to answer this question, what do you want to learn about? What do you do when no one's telling you what to do? And then make an hour a week to let them pursue that interest. If you're a large comprehensive high school, right, you could do a school within a school. Get the coalition of the willing. Get the teachers who want to do it and the parents and the students who want to do it and start designing, right? There are lots of exemplar, exemplars and examples yeah. out there yeah. of how you can make this alive. Um, and that's why I think of it as spreading. Yeah, it's at the heart of a... Uh actually the journalistic learning initiative. I mean, if you think about it, and we tell educators and, and administrators this all the time, that the, the journalistic approach, it may be the, the one time in the day that the teacher turns to the students and says, you know, what are you excited about? What do you want to go learn about? And gives them permission to do that. Yes. And, um, and, and so, you know, that's very much at the heart of our work. Um, however, I am also then wondering what you're thinking, because, it, you know, there, there's a concern that we're going backwards. I mean, we've got parts of our country, um, the politicizing of school school boards, uh, banning of books, um, you know, uh, discussions about what you can and can't talk about uh, in, a, in a classroom. Um, and um, I'm just wondering whether you think we're, we're moving forward as a nation or something else is going on. That's a, that's a big question, right? Especially on the heels of an election. Um, what I will say is that this frame of kind of talking about these two worldviews and how they affect us as human beings, I have found it's been surprisingly um, relevant and accessible to folks that we would think of as both on the political left and the political right, right? I mean, in many ways, rural America, and I'll keep this to education, has been saying for years, right? You on the, you coastal elites are having this conversation about college for all, and you don't recognize that our kids are doing 4-H and they're working on farms and they're becoming tradespeople, and somehow that's not good enough, right? That's not educated. So this idea that we need to go back to our local communities to shared sets of values, I think is is really important and that it looks different in different places, that there isn't one model that is going to kind of work for all the contexts. But the bigger answer to your question, I think, about the politicization, to me, this goes back to we have somehow in our dominant culture lost sight of our ability to start with each other as people and not as sort of abstract principles, whether it's you're the urban elite or you're the Republican or you're the Democrat. And to actually say, look, we we live in community with each other. What does it mean to come together in community? I think one of our challenges, you know, as, as a country is that we slowly undid a lot of the institutions that used to help kind of bring people together across lines of difference. And we did it because we had concerns about, you know, patriarchy and paternalism and all sorts of other things. But we're a country where we ask people to leave behind their kind of values and identities and come to this country and build ourselves on this idea of life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Human beings don't do really well with abstractions like that, right? We have to know each other and we have to know what that means as we live together in community. And so I don't think I'm being Pollyanna-ish about this, but I think 
as we move forward, I'm trying to be really attentive to what is my sphere of influence? Who are the people that I am around? And how do I do a better job of holding space for them to show up as they are um, and not feeling threatened if they're different or come up with, with kind of different opinions? And my experience has been that when you can create spaces for people to come together first as human beings, we find that there's more in common than not. And when you have that commonality, I think there's room to then move forward and sort of, you know, ask, ask questions. And one last thing I'll say is that I think we have to remember that a lot of what we're reading in the newspapers and the politicization and the kind of arguments, there are small groups of people that really want to foment that and really want that to be at the top of the agenda because it serves their purpose of undermining public institutions, trust in, you know, certain spheres. And so I think we have to not let them, um, right? That when we hear those and, oh, this is happening, that's happening. One, I don't know how much, I don't know which of those stories is true. I'm sure many are true. And I think many are probably not. Um, but then to kind of circle back and be like, who, who's here? Who's in my village? Who's in my community? And how do I expand that? Wow. Thank you. The book is The Future of Smart. Thank you so much for joining us. Um, and this has really been a great discussion. Thank you, Ed. How to Have Kids Love Learning is produced by the Journalistic Learning Initiative. For more information about our work, please visit journalisticlearning.com.